You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. Good morning. Hey, if you're um, if you're still trying to find a seat, there's like right here in front. So, if it's not too intimidating, there's plenty actually in the front in the front row. Um, we did not buy a honey baked ham. However, my wife used her um, blow. What do you call that thing? What do you call that? Like like her. It's like a. It's like fire. It's like you make your own glaze with it. And uh, I expect it to be very good. So better than honey baked ham. For sure, for sure. But we're looking forward to having some guests over as well today. And I'm sure many of you are as well. Some are hosting. How many are hosting today? How many of you are hosting a meal? Okay, brave souls. How many of you are attending a hosted meal? Will you do the dishes, please? (laughs) All right, just kidding, just kidding. Those coming to my home, that didn't apply to you. (laughs) Well, the resurrection happened 2,000 years ago. Because Jesus resurrected, you and I have the same hope that life, this life will not be final. But does Jesus' resurrection change me today? Does it spill into the present? To answer this question, I'd like you to turn to Romans 6, verses 4 through 6. Please stand. I'm going to read this opening passage. It's page 942 if you use our pew Bible. Beginning in verse 4, Romans 6. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. This is God's Word. Okay, you may be seated. What is this saying? When we believe in Jesus, we are raised with Him. We are united with Him in His resurrection. Because He is alive, We share in His life. Jesus is not merely a concept. He has presence and personality and every attribute of life. To be raised with Him means we are literally plunged into the life of God. Baptism here is employed by Paul as a word picture to describe this spiritual transaction. Baptism means literally to be dipped into, plunged, immersed. When we accept Jesus, we are immersed into His life. Now, theologians have called this reality, this transaction, they have called it union or oneness with Christ. And what I would like to do this morning is I'd like to emphasize the importance of this union 
with Christ? Then secondly, try to answer the question, how do I sustain that? And then thirdly, what difference does it really make? So there's your outline. One, the importance of our union with Christ. Secondly, how do I sustain it over a lifetime? And thirdly, does it make any difference in my life practically? So let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, uh, on this Easter morning, where we remember an event, an historical event, help us to grasp, not just know intellectually, Father, but through the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to grasp the significance of it for our lives. Father, whether it's a lot or a little, Please change us today. Father, for my friends that already know you and are acquainted with you, may they be renewed today in their faith. For those, Father, who are investigating, for those that are looking into, for those that have not yet entered into a relationship with you, might today move them a little closer to receiving you as their leader, as their forgiver. And it's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. So, this idea of union with Jesus, does that feel mysterious? Certainly it does. It is a truth existing in the spiritual, the non-material realm. So yes, it is hard to understand. But does it sound important? No doubt it sounds important. It infers a deep connectedness, a oneness, a coexistence. Author Julie Canis points out that Christians tend to speak of their salvation as Jesus in my heart. A phrase that is only used one time in the Bible. Paul utilizes something else far more often. He uses the phrase, in Christ, 165 times. The Bible's favorite way of describing our salvation, Canlis writes, is one we rarely use. For Paul, salvation was simple. It was being joined to Jesus Christ. Here's a small sample of how in Christ is used in the New Testament. Let me begin with, uh, again, Romans 8.1, beginning there. Paul wrote, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.30, and because of Him, the Father, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Referring to the future return of Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 Paul wrote, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Every blessing from God is tied to being in Christ. 
making us relationally right before God, our justification. Helping us grow spiritually, our sanctification. Resurrecting us at the end of our lives to eternal life, our glorification. All of these remarkable gifts are grounded in being joined to Jesus' life. And we can join His life only because of the resurrection. If He remained dead, those blessings would be beyond our reach. If the resurrection is only metaphorical, if it is a quasi-spiritual way to talk about newness or the coming of spring or rebirth, all of those blessings would be nothing more than flowery sentiments. No substance to it about the same weight of a Hallmark card. My apologies to any Hallmark employees. Throughout history, many others have recognized the centrality of deep connection with and to Jesus and its importance. For example, way back in the 1500s, John Calvin said that, the, that union with Christ has the highest degree of importance if we are to understand justification or our salvation correctly. Born in the turn of the 20th century, John Murray wrote that union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It is simply not a phase of the application of redemption. It underlies every aspect of redemption. Redemption is that holistic plan by which God brings us back into relationship with Himself. Lewis Smedes said that union with Christ was at once the center and the circumference of authentic human existence. And Anthony Hoakima, good Dutch name, wrote that once you have, had, once you have your eyes opened to this concept of union with Christ, you find it almost everywhere in the New Testament. Raised with Christ. United spiritually with Him. Because this is hard to wrap our heads around, the Bible uses many other pictures besides baptism to describe it. Let me take you to another one. Perhaps the best one. Look at John chapter 15. Let's see if we can understand more about what this union of Christ means. Turn to page 901 if you're using the Pew Bible. John's Gospel, chapter 15. Now, as you turn there, let me give you the context. Jesus is with his apprentices, his disciples, on the night of his betrayal. So it would have been Good Friday, just two nights ago, what we celebrated. They are having the Passover meal together. And the conversation is about bearing fruit. And no, it's not an agronomy lesson. And no, it's not a gardening lesson. It's a spiritual lesson. And the idea of a human being or a culture bearing fruit had a long tradition dating back to the Old Testament. In an agricultural society, when Jesus talked in these terms, everyone can connect immediately. Everyone understood and had a picture of a small seed turning into good fruit. And the lesson was this, is that the fruit of our lives, what is visible, what is felt by others, the taste that our presence leaves with others, 
all of that flows from what is inside of us, from a place that is not visible, from our hearts. Where there is good fruit, Jesus is saying, it demonstrates a heart that has been shaped by God. Jesus knew he was soon departing, and he wanted his disciples to bear good fruit. And so in this passage, he gives them a clue as to how that will happen. Look at verse 1, John 15, verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Jesus is the vine. He is the source of life and vitality. We are the branch. And there is an organic connection between us. His life seeps into ours and ours into His. It might be a drip, drip, drip. Or it might be a free-flowing river. Regardless, His life in ours is the source of every good outcome. If we're cut off from His life, If something prevents that flow, the simple lesson is we cannot bear good fruit. And in the end, if we do not bear fruit, good fruit, we will be cut off and taken away, even if we have the appearance of being a legitimate branch. Now, this again is consistent with the Old Testament. When cultures in the Old Testament moved beyond the point of no longer being able to bear God's image in their culture, of no longer being able to bear any good fruit, God brought them into judgment. So if you want to bear fruit, what is the key word in this passage? Just yell it out, yell it out. Yeah, it is to abide. Abide in me and I in you. Remember, we're trying to get after here what does it mean to have a union a oneness with Jesus. To abide literally means to take up residence with, to dwell with, to make room in your heart. Abiding is ordering your life around the presence of Jesus. Making Him the center point. He desires to operate with us as the sun does with the planets. The sun is in the center and the planets orbit around the sun. That is how God wants us to so arrange the order of our lives. I like something that Brent Curtis wrote about this concept of abiding. In seeking to understand abiding, he searched for alternatives. In the book Secret Romance, he asked the question, what else can abide or dwell or be the center point of my life? Let me read this lengthy section, and I must say it's, with great transparency and and self-awareness that he wrote this. This is what what he wrote. 
If I'm not abiding in Jesus, then where is it that I abide? I once asked myself this, and I began to notice that when I was tired or anxious, there were certain sentences I would say in my head that led me to a familiar place. The journey to this place would often start with me walking around disturbed, feeling as if there was something deep inside that I needed to put into words but couldn't quite capture. I felt the something as anxiety, loneliness, and a need for connection with someone. I felt that, um, sorry, I got to keep my finger here. If no connection came, I would start to say things like, life really stinks. Why is it always so hard? It is never going to change. Are you relating yet? If no one noticed I was struggling or asked me what was wrong, I found my sentences shifting to a more cynical level like, who cares? Life is a joke. Surprisingly, by the time I was saying those last sentences, I was feeling better. The anxiety was greatly diminished. My comforter, my abiding place, my center, so to speak, was cynicism and rebellion. From this abiding place, I would feel free to use some soul cocaine. Watching a violent movie, maybe with a little sexual titillation thrown in. Having more alcohol with a meal that I might normally drink. Things that would allow me to feel better for a little while. I had always thought of these things as just bad habits. I began to see they were much more. They were spiritual abiding places that were my comforters and my friends in a very spiritual way. The final light went on one evening when I read John 15, 7 in the message. Eugene Peterson translates Jesus' words on abiding this way. He says, if you make yourselves at home with me and my words at home in you, you can be sure that whatever you ask will be listened to and acted upon. Jesus was saying in answer to my question, I have made my home in you, Brent, but you still have other comforters you go to. You must learn to make your home in me. Did you grasp that? Did you grasp that insight? Do you see how quickly we make something else, that abiding place, that center point, where we find the temporary lore of comfort, but it never last. Very insightful. Okay, let's move on. So, how do we abide in Christ? Again, the first clue we get is in the verse that Brent quoted in verse 7. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Abiding relates to Jesus' words being in us. Now, another clue is given in verses 9 and 10. Look at that. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Jesus recognized that believing in and receiving and accepting the love of the Father was central to abiding. How did exactly, how exactly did the Father love Jesus? 
Now, there are many ways he did. But one specific way relating to this context is the Father's continual presence. Jesus was never alone. The Father was always there. They enjoyed a very close and intimate connection. Jesus loved the disciples with the same kind of love. For three years, He was present. They were never alone. Ah, but what about the future? Remember, this talk is on the eve of His death. What would happen to the disciples when Jesus physically left the earth? Well, they would still never be alone. How? Because Jesus continued to manifest His life to them through the Holy Spirit. And learning to abide in Jesus would make His ever-present Spirit available to them. This ongoing presence of Jesus was a big part of that Passover sermon. They would never be on their own because the resurrected Jesus would always be with them through the Holy Spirit. This picture of the vine and the branch, this idea of abiding, helps us to begin to understand what it means to be one with Christ and how important it is in our lives. So that's our first point. Let's move to the second point. How do we sustain it? How can we grow in it? How can we develop in it? Go back to verse 10, if you would. Go back to verse 10. Jesus gives us the answer. By keeping His commandments. By submitting to Him and and freely and voluntarily, just as He did with the Father. We keep His commandments by submitting to Jesus freely and voluntarily, just as He did with the Father. Now, there are lots of commandments. Does Jesus mean all 613 in the Old Testament? Does He mean the Ten Commandments? Is He talking about an eye for an eye? Is the command going to be an excessive burden that I cannot carry? Will it steal my joy? Perhaps those were the thoughts of the disciples when He said this. Or maybe they even reflect the protest in your own heart. Following God's commands at first glance may feel ominous or burdensome. Well, I think Jesus may have anticipated your objections and the disciples. Look at what He says in verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Jesus exercises authority in our lives not to take our freedom, but that we might experience true freedom. And to the question of will the commands be too complex to follow? Well, to answer that question, Jesus only gives one. So it must be paramount. Certainly Jesus gave more commands, so somehow this one must open the door to understanding and practicing the others. And this one commandment is in verse 12. Remember, we're answering the question, how do we sustain abiding in Christ? Here is what Jesus says. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, than one laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. 
Friends, what is your greatest resource to abiding in Jesus, to living a Spirit-filled life, to bearing fruit, and to know that you're never alone? What is your greatest resource? Look around this room. You're sitting next to your greatest resource. It's the church. Loving one another. Followers of Jesus, love one another just as I have loved you. Again, quoting Julie Canlis, she wrote this, the church is the context for our union with Jesus. The church is not merely a building or a community of people. It exists in union with Christ. And union with Christ means that you can't say, Jesus, yes, church, no. I want you to see the chain, the sequence that exists in verses 9, 10, and 12. Look at the chain there. You have abiding in Jesus equals keeping His commandments equals loving one another. If we abide in Jesus, to be sustain it, it will mean loving one another. Why do we so often, when we think of the term or the phrase being spirit-filled or abiding in Jesus, why do we so often view that as a solitary thing centered around only my own spiritual practices? Could it be, is it because of the culture's individualism? Does the rampant individualism that's in our culture, has it penetrated so deeply into our church? Do we neglect one of our greatest resources for living a joy-filled, meaningful, significant, fruitful life? Are we perhaps... Perhaps are we depressed and anxious and frustrated and lonely because we have turned our backs on the one resource that helps open up the floodgates of the presence of Christ, His church. Now, Some of you this morning are saying, I've tried that. I tried the church and I found it wanting. I tried the church and I found shallow people not very much different than my secular friends. Or, I grew up attending church and I did believe I went every Sunday. But when I got older, I realized that the same gossip, the same backbiting, the same political posturing that I see in my family, that I see in my workplace, was right there in the church where people were supposed to be different. And so without any accompanying reality, after a while, all the testimonies, all the songs, all the sermons just felt like white noise. If that describes you this morning, for whatever this means to you, I just want to tell you I'm, I'm so sorry. I am so very sorry. I recognize this is a legitimate experience for way too many people and is a real obstacle for people taking the church in 2019 seriously. On top of that, recent sex scandals in the church, celebrity pastors, the church being over-politicized from the left or from the right, all of that just makes you more cynical. 
I can only appeal to you to say that there are healthy churches out there that are different. Healthy churches where the power of a resurrected Jesus is transforming people to become new communities. A new family. Places where shallowness, pettiness, and ruined relationships are not the norm. Places where holiness, justice, and loving the unlovely are pursued seriously. We are trying to be, Linworth is trying to be one of those healthy places. I suspect that we have a long way to go. But it is where we, we are trying to get to. To love as He loved. Every day, I come to work trying to move us closer. To become a church where the presence of Christ is not hindered or masked by pride and selfishness. I believe we are moving towards it, but in the end, it will not matter what I think. It only matters what Jesus thinks. And you might wonder, what gives me hope for the church? There is one thing I know with certainty that gives me hope for the church, and that is that Jesus has not given up on His church. With all of her weaknesses, her blind spots, her shortcomings, He loves His church and remains committed to her. And He continues to shape and to love and to discipline her. And He has not given up. And I hope this morning that you will not give up on the church. Pastor Tabidi Anyabawe wrote about this oneness with Jesus and oneness with one another beautifully. This is from a book aptly called The Life of God in the Soul of the Church. He wrote this, Our life together was both rooted in God the Son and grows up into the full resemblance of the Son. Our union with Jesus is both the root and the fruit of our spiritual fellowship. What I believe is that you cannot live a meaningful, spirit-filled life only through your individual efforts, your own spiritual practices, as good as they are. There is a grace that God pours out through His people to one another. Part of immersing yourself in the Spirit is taking heart to the call to love one another. And that loving means loving others in their imperfections, their immaturity, and their selfishness. When we become believers, God places us in a family with all of His peculiarities, traditions, family reunions, and crazy uncles on top of it. That is the church. Loving one another is a piece of the puzzle to how our union with Jesus is sustained. That's our second point. How we sustain. How over time we persevere in connecting to and abiding and being united with Jesus. Let's go to the third point. Does it make any difference? I offer my own life as exhibit A for this. I'll just tell you frankly and honestly as I can, there is not any way I could be the husband that I am, the father that I am, the pastor that I am today without the loving relationships of the church. 
Those of you who have grown up with me know that. I came into my adult world with a lot of holes that desperately needed patching. A lot of self-centeredness, a lot of pride, and a boatload of insecurity. The fruit of that mix, the fruit of that mix was a poor relational posture. I had good professional posture. Professionally, I was headed in the right direction. But I had a deficient relational posture. If we want to head north, but are pointed south and don't know we're going in the wrong direction, we're not going to like where we end up. My soul wanted to go relationally north, but was pointed south. And the outcome, the fruit, was an independence that hindered intimacy and that hindered the challenge to connect deeply with people over sustained periods of time. And the last I checked, to be a husband and a father and a pastor, one of the sole ingredients is being able to connect with people deeply over a sustained period of time. Certainly the spiritual disciplines helped me. Prayer and reading the Bible. But that alone could not unearth the obstacles that were preventing the flow of Jesus' life into mine. I needed the church, its fellowship, its brotherhood, the sharing of His Word, the exercise of spiritual gifts, the grace and power of God poured on to me through others, the gentle pointing out of my weaknesses, the compassion when my hard heart in ugliness broke through its crust. And I met compassion there. I could not have changed without that. I like to picture the church like a relational warehouse if it's healthy. You back your truck up every Sunday or when your life group meets and you unload your boxes and your boxes get all packed up and you load them back in your truck. And you unpack those boxes throughout the week and they teach you how to do practically life and relationships with others. How marriages get close. How friendships deepen. How parenting turns from grace-based to fear-based. And many, many other things about how relationships actually work. The church is a relational warehouse because of the resurrected Jesus helping us learn what it means to actually love one another and to feel a deep connection to one another. So, what must each of us do if we want to abide in Jesus over the long haul? Here's a big idea of what I'm trying to share this morning. Is we must pursue deeper love within the relational network of a healthy church. We must find a healthy church. And we must pursue deeper love within that relational network. You see, seeing the church as an extension of the shared life of Jesus changes everything. No longer do I attend church from habit only or from a legalistic mindset. I attend church in order to share in the life of God, in the life of Christ. And I come to receive grace as He pours it out through His words, 
or through another believer. Or, on the other side, I come because I can be a conduit of that grace and power that God pours out to me, through me, onto somebody else. Remember what Nick mentioned a few weeks ago. One of our core values is the priesthood of believers. We are all called to ministry. And I wonder how many of us have that expectation when we gather together as believers that God may want to use you this morning or in your small group connection as a conduit of His grace and power into the lives of others. What are you expecting? What are you looking for? Secondly, staying with the life groups for a moment. Secondly, when we abide in Christ, when the resurrected life of Christ lives in His church, we find ways to dig deeper into community. And our life groups here serve as a catalyst for loving relationships and a place to experience spiritual fellowship. They are not simply a gathering for a social connection, as important or valuable as that may be. It's not primarily about that. It's not primarily simply about a gathering of like-minded people to talk about just everything you're experiencing, though it has a component of that. But that's not its primary purpose. Life groups are for not simply checking off another spiritual to-do box. They are ways to enter into the life of Jesus. And so when you gather in your life group, do you expect God to show up in your gatherings? Are you looking for Christ to be revealed through the presence of one another? Thirdly and fourthly, when we have this view of the church, it changes the great signs, the great symbols of the church. For example, it changes our view of baptism. In baptism, when we go under the water, we are dying to our attempts to live without Christ and His church. Baptism is the ritual that demonstrates I belong not only to Jesus, but I belong to His people, the church. To be baptized is a radical statement, by the way. To be baptized is a radical statement. It is no small thing. And I do hope this morning, I believe some of you may be here this morning, and you're investigating Christ, and I just want you to know one of the first steps is to be baptized, to identify yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ. And fourthly, the church as the life of Christ, the organic life of Christ, changes the way we view communion. It is not only when we take the bread and the cup, as we did Friday night, it is not only our connection to Jesus we are celebrating, it is our connection to one another. This is exactly what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17. He wrote this, When we bless the cup at the Lord's table, aren't we sharing in the blood of Christ? And when we break the bread, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? And though we are many, we all eat from one loaf of bread, showing that we are one body. I hope this morning that you have recognized the importance of our union with Christ. Secondly, I hope that you have seen how it is sustained over time if we will practice the one command that will open the hinge and the door to have the power 
and the understanding and the wisdom to practice the rest of Jesus' commands, and that is to love one another. That will give us the sustaining power to abide and to remain, to stay put (laughs) with Jesus. And then thirdly, I hope you've seen how the resurrected Jesus, working through his body, teaches us to abandon ourselves and to love one another, and how that teaches us how to really practically, in wisdom, do relationships. It points us north so that we can have the kinds of relationships we desire, the kinds of relationships that truly bring human joy and human flourishing. One final thing we're going to do before we turn to singing, as we end this morning through celebration, we end by singing, we end by going back to the resurrection. I want us to again realize the resurrection spills into the present by a reorientation around being part of a new family and a new community. We experience this new community and the power flowing from it because he rose again. We're going to watch here, uh, very brief, but a, uh, a spoken word, a monologue, so to speak, a spoken word. Let's come back to these three simple words and their power as we end, the day, or as we end this part of our service as we move towards a response of worship and of giving, let's listen to these words through the spoken word. While it happens, again, just stay seated, please. We're going to take our offering, and um, uh, this is your opportunity to give back to God if that's your desire this morning. But also, if you're here this morning and you filled out that Connect card, again, maybe you've come for the first time, maybe maybe um, you've been coming here for a little while and you, you checked off that Connect card, There's some things you'd like to receive back from us, some information you want to get back from us. Check off the appropriate places in that Connect card. We'll get those back to you. We'll send those things to you. And again, we would just simply love to serve you. But you can drop that Connect card in the offering basket as it goes by. So let's start the video. And uh, ushers, you can go ahead and, and begin.